The scripture reading for today comes from John 21, verses 9 through 19. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said to him, follow me. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated, and I want to invite Mike Autry to come up, and he's going to be our guest preacher for us today. Mike is a pastor um, in our presbytery up in Santa Rosa. Uh, and Mike might be my favorite pastor in our presbytery because he and I are both gluttons for punishment and go on super long mountainous bike rides together. And uh, I'm excited that he's getting to come worship with us this morning and, and preach for us. And so let's, uh, let's welcome Mike this morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning, coming down from Santa Rosa and be able to bring the word of God to you all this morning. And... Uh, before we do so, before we, we get into what God's Word says here from, uh, from John uh, 21, let me, let me pray for us uh, that God, by His Spirit, would uh, open His Word to us, open our, our understanding to it, and change us as well. So let's pray. Lord God, uh, we are a people who need to hear Your Word. We, it, this is Your Word of life to us, and because of that, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our understanding to it, to not just see, to see words about Jesus from the page, but to actually um, have Jesus come alive to us here, and the grace and mercy and the kindness of Jesus for, uh, for sinners such as us uh, to, to be more real to us than it was before. I pray this in his name. Amen. One result of the sinful condition in which all of us, people like you and myself, all, all live in is the inevitable breaches of our relationships that happen with, with each other, isn't it? 
it really doesn't matter who you are. Uh, it doesn't matter who it's with either. You will find yourself to be at odds with people every once in a while. And sometimes it's not even just acquaintances, but sometimes it's the people that we know and we love the most, the most deepest. In fact, those who we know the deepest are oftentimes the ones we hurt the most also. And that's where those particular words, those three words that are spoken to us are so life-giving. Those words, I forgive you. And I think you all know how sweet they are when you are the one who's the culprit also. But sometimes that's the easy part in it, though. The hard part is actually living out that you are forgiven and that you are reconciled to that person. Because sometimes we feel that period of awkwardness that comes afterwards. When you feel like you're on probation in some sort of way. Uh, whether it's self-imposed or not, but you're trying to go above and beyond to prove to the other person that you really are sorry. Even when they've spoken the forgiveness to you. It's like we still need to add something to be restored. And there are times when we misapply that same mindset with God then. Can you recall perhaps a time when you felt that way? Maybe some of us feel it this morning here. We open up, have, we've opened up a relational breach between us and God by our disregard for his will, for his good commands to us. And we rebel against his design for our lives. And the beauty of the gospel, though, is that God himself has taken all of the necessary steps to reconcile us back to him by the life and death of his son, Jesus. I mean, that's part of the liturgy that we had this morning here of the, how God has spoken to us. He speaks his law and it convicts us. We come in humility and confession, but we do, he doesn't just let us lie there. But then he speaks his words of grace and pardon to, back to us. He says those words, I forgive you in Jesus. And those are really good words. But do you believe those words? Even when we still receive God's affirmation of his mercy to us in Jesus, it's easy for us to think that we're still on probation or that we need to do something to prove that this time I'll get it right. This time things will be different. It's like getting into God's good graces is something that takes time to repay even when we know that promise of restoration and reconciliation is instantaneous. But Jesus doesn't allow us to do that, though. And he shows us that by his interaction with Peter as he invites Peter over for breakfast. Now, there's something intimate and there's something good about sharing a meal, isn't there? Right? You go out to lunch with someone, you grab a cup of coffee with someone, and what does it mean? There's the desire to know them. There's the desire to be known by them. And how much more than also when there's a, an issue to be resolved with, with one another. Sitting around a table with a willingness to know, to be known, and to be restored to each other. And as Jesus and Peter are sitting around this fire here sharing a meal, Jesus reaches out to Peter by him taking the initiative then for reconciliation. He doesn't hold him at arm's length. He doesn't ask him, how are you going to prove yourself this time? He doesn't even say, what are you going to do different next time? He just takes Peter, this broken, humbled man who has denied his very Lord, and he restores him back into fellowship with himself. And like Peter, your love and your service to Jesus and to others flows from experiencing his gracious reconciliation. And so we're going to look at four points this morning about that restoration that Peter experienced from Jesus 
and is also for us. And the first one is that restoration is by Jesus' invitation. Uh, just to set this up briefly, um, in the, the few verses ahead of this here, I and mean, if you have your Bible, you can look in verses 1 through 8, but you have the, the disciples there, they're, they've seen Jesus a couple times after the resurrection, and they're kind of like, what are we going to do? And a bunch of them decide, let's go fishing again. They go out and, be, uh, and, they, and they, they fish on the Sea of Galilee like they're used to, but they don't catch anything at all that night. But then Jesus is on the shore. They don't recognize him yet. And they say, cast your net on the other side. So they do. And suddenly they catch in this enormous haul of fish. And they recognize it's Jesus. And, and they, they, they bring the boat back into shore. But Peter, in typical Peter, uh, jumps in the water, swim, tries to swim a, a ahead of them all. And they get up there on the shore. And this is the scene that they have. Uh, there's Jesus with bread and fish, with breakfast ready for them. And so... Uh, verse 9, though, as, as it says specifically, that it's a, a charcoal fire. Jesus has been cooking breakfast over the fire. And it says it's a specifically a charcoal fire. And there are plenty of times in the Bible where we have all of these details that are given, and, and they don't seem very important. Like it says here before also, there's 153 fish that they caught in the net. I don't think there's anything significant to that other than just saying, that's a lot of fish. But here, though, is this one of those times, a charcoal fire? Why does it say that? Well, there's only one other place in the whole Bible where it mentions specifically a charcoal fire. And it's also here in the Gospel of John, just a couple chapters before, in chapter 18, verse 18. And the charcoal fire there is the fire outside where Jesus was being tried by the religious leaders to be unjustly crucified. It's the fire where Jesus' enemies were warming themselves that night. And who else do we see also sitting around that fire that night? But Peter. The charcoal fire is the scene of his three denials of Jesus, warming himself with, the Lord, with his Lord's enemies. Where out of fear, where out of self-preservation, he would leave his master and he would identify himself instead with those people who were, who were condemning him. And here's, though, another charcoal fire. Not the one from that night, but here's Jesus' charcoal fire. Where Peter denied Jesus three times and wept bitterly because he was devastated by what he just did. Now here's Jesus inviting him around his own fire. And he sets out this meal for him. It's this meal of reconciliation. This is a moment where Peter's wounds are going to be reopened. It's going to be painful, but not for the sake of ha just simply having him remember that night, but for Jesus to apply the healing balm of reconciliation and forgiveness to heal those wounds. Now think about how awkward everything must have been for Peter before this. Uh, the Gospels say that when Peter denied Jesus three times, uh, Jesus looked him in the face and it says that Peter goes and he weeps bitterly. And now this is the, the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to, to his disciples. And what do you think must have been going on through Peter's mind all those times before? All right, certainly there was this joy and this awe and this wonder. I'm, I'm, I'm certain there. But don't you think there must have been a little bit of fear as well? A little bit of an embarrassment? Awkwardness? Maybe even hypocrisy? Because he knows that Jesus knows what he just did. 
You have to imagine then that, that look that Jesus gave him on that night when the rooster crowed was haunting his memory. And even here then, as you see the excitement of, of Peter, he jumps in the water. He, uh, uh, he wants to go see Jesus. He wants to be the one who's first. But you have to think also that he's feeling this sort of unresolved tension at the same time. Maybe even that he has to prove himself. He jumps into the water to be first. He's the one who pulls up the heavy net of fish all by himself just to show that, you know, Jesus, I actually am really committed. But there's something in this whole scene, though, that's familiar also. They've just spent the whole night fishing without getting a single catch. Yet there's Jesus on the shore telling them to put their net in on the other side. And then they bring in this enormous haul of fish. It's just like when, when Jesus initially called Peter and the other disciples to come and to follow him. It even happens at the same place. It happens at the Sea of Galilee. It's like Jesus is reminding Peter of that call to follow him and the call that he put on him to be a disciple in the first place. And here's um, Jesus now, again, with bread and fish on the shore of Galilee. It reminds Peter and, and us too, if we're thinking about the, the, about the, the whole story. It reminds me about Jesus feeding the 5,000 in that same place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with bread and fish in John chapter 6. And in the context of all of that, when uh, Jesus has just called himself the bread of life and he's given bread and fish to these people. He says in chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. See, Jesus is reminding Peter with this breakfast of his love for him, even in his failure of being a disciple in that moment, and that he doesn't need to fear being cast away. This is what Peter needs in his despair for denying the Lord. Essentially, Jesus is saying, yes, Peter, you've sinned pretty grievously. You're a broken man. You failed in the call that I put upon you. But Peter, no. Don't fear that I will cast you away and be done with you in all of this. And now here's the crux of the moment. They sit hunched over the bread and the fish, and Jesus looks at Peter he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Not just do you love me, but do you love me more than these other disciples do? And those denials must have been swirling around through, through Peter's mind again. In this crushing moment, all he can say is, yes, Lord, you know. And not once, not twice, but three times they go through this here. It's an incredibly humbling moment for Peter. Jesus questioning him the three times and pulling that confession from him is for each of his denials around the fire that happened that evening. He's not doing this to provoke Peter. He's not doing it to cause him pain. He's doing this to give, them, to give him the opportunity to express his love for them, though, for each of those times. Because each time then here, Jesus responds by giving him a task. He says, I do know. So go take your love for me and go love the flock. Love me by loving my sheep. Love me by loving what I love. Now, all of us can identify with Peter at some point or another here. When we are crushed by the weight of what we've done, and we feel the estrangement with God, or, or at least a strained relationship with him. Perhaps this morning was awkward for some of us coming to church this morning because we know how much we've let him down this past week. 
where we've been humbled because we recognize what we've done, that we continue to fall into the same habits and patterns of sin over and over, and we see just how deep that wrong, that the wrongs go to. Maybe you've held yourself back from church for a while because you've had a strained past and you just felt unworthy to come to him. Friends, Jesus calls to you too. He calls to all of us here. He invites you to come around his fire. He wants you to come to his place of reconciliation because he's done everything that's necessary for you to be brought back into a proper relationship. It's why he went to the cross in the first place to remove all the sin that causes our embarrassment and our shame before God. As Jesus was tried and crucified, he died to take away the record of Peter's denials there that had just happened. Do you believe that he's also died to take away your record as well? Jesus doesn't hold grudges. Jesus isn't vindictive. His purpose was coming in coming was to come and to reconcile. When he says those words, again, you're forgiven. Believe that. Believe those words. They're such sweet words. They're life-giving words. And it can be hard to know that sometimes personally and existentially because you feel like a hypocrite or when you've repeatedly, again, turned back over and over to those same sins. But just because you don't feel it in this personal way or have experienced that, that, that freedom in, in in those words there, doesn't mean that they aren't true. And don't just sit with awkwardness there. Don't, don't, don't even come with awkwardness or feeling like you need to do something to prove your love to him, but sit around his fire with him as he invites you and come and hear his promises yet again. So there's one point, point about restoration, but another one, and don't worry, the, the other ones aren't, points aren't as long as that first one, but Restoration, though, also empowers us to serve. When we read about Peter in the gospel accounts prior to this moment, he's kind of this reckless and brash man. He's forthcoming. He's pretty arrogant and zealous to this, to this degree that we kind of find out a little bit obnoxious. Telling Jesus, oh no, I'll never fall away. I'll never deny you. I'll even be willing to die for you. In fact, even at one point, having the audacity to take Jesus aside and, and kind of get him to reconsider the whole cross business. He's obnoxious to the point that probably if some of us met him, I know for myself too, I'd have some doubts on whether or not God was actually going to use this guy. Let alone for the apostle that we see later used for, uh, for Jesus' cause. But, but now look at him though in this moment around this fire. It adds extra impact to Jesus' question, do you love me more than these? When he's the only one, other one, other than Judas, who actually defected. Peter is amazingly and uncharacteristically quiet in this moment there because he's deeply humbled. Maybe I'm not so great as I thought. Maybe I'm not so strong. Maybe I'm not as willing as I thought. And all I can do is just simply muster up those few words, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But this marks a turning point in Peter's life because the Peter we read about in the rest of the New Testament isn't quite like the one that we've seen before. This is the Peter then who will exhort uh, in, in uh, his, his first epistle would write the following there. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as well as 
fellow partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He also writes in 1 Peter, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, this disciple who was brash and arrogant before, the disciple who was fearful, would be the, the apostle then who would write these words then as a humble shepherd to the sheep and as someone who knew what it meant to suffer for the sake of Christ. And what is it that changed him? It's this moment of reconciliation. It's this moment of humiliation and then being brought back and knowing the reconciliation of Jesus. And it's because of that that Peter now knows grace personally. It's that sort of grace that he knows that actually allows him to pastor well. In fact, I think it's the only way that he was truly able to carry out Jesus' commands to, to care for the flock. It's only by experiencing his humbling followed by that moment of reconciling grace. See, it's, re it's restoration and knowing the grace of Jesus that makes us fit for his service. I don't know most of the majority of people here. I don't know your backgrounds, but I do know people. And I'm certain then that some of you come out of broken or sinful pasts. They could be recent. They could be buried in history, but it really doesn't matter because Jesus doesn't hold those against you. But it's easy, though, to believe the lie that God only uses those uh, who haven't messed up or who live shiny lives or who have everything put together. But none of that's true, though. Not a single word of it is true. He calls and he uses broken people for his cause. For one thing, because there are no perfect people. But more importantly, it's those who are broken and humble that are able to be employed for his cause in ways that point to him as the Christ, not themselves. Knowing grace doesn't harden us. It softens us. It allows us to love others because we bear the indelible marks of Jesus' grace upon us. It changes how we act among others, how we speak to them. We become more gentle just as Jesus is, and he, he continues to be gentle to us. When I know reconciliation and mercy, I will look at other people differently, particularly those people who are bogged down or lost because I know myself and I know that it's only by Jesus extending himself to me that I actually have anything. When we are broken and we are come face to face then with the reality of our Savior amid our own neediness, it allows us then to enter into the lives of others. Your past failures don't need to be impediments to, uh, for being used for Jesus' kingdom. In fact, perhaps we're even better equipped to pull the focus off of ourselves and cast our hopes instead upon Jesus. Now, the third point about restoration is that restoration is a continuing work. In verse 18, Jesus gives us this, this curious bit of information. He tells Peter, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It's kind of this curious phrase. What's he telling Peter? What's this mean? Well, he's revealing Peter's fate, martyrdom. In a, in a younger life, he was free, but later he'll be carried away to die by the authorities because of his ministry. And verse 19 alludes 
alludes to that. But so also does verse 18 when it says, stretch out your hands, which is a common phrase used by the Romans in that time in reference to crucifixion, where the one being put on the cross was told to stretch the hands out across the bar before they would be nailed in. But then Jesus says, follow me. And he does. Peter follows. But why? The natural response is to seriously question whether or not he's to be trusted or if he might deny Jesus again. Is Peter possibly worth the liability to be, to be taking again? Can Peter be useful? In fact, you might even think Peter himself is thinking some of these things. What? I don't even trust myself. Why are you trusting me, Jesus? But again, consider those words of Jesus to him. You're going to die for me. You're going to be crucified for my cause. Peter may have once been a coward on that night, and he probably still was a coward here at this, at this point right now. But it's Jesus' words to him that give him confidence as he goes forward. He's going to do what seemed to be unimaginable for someone like him. Martyrdom. He's going to die for Jesus, but not because of his own strength or his own ability. He will be able to follow Jesus, this time following him all the way to his own crucifixion because of what Jesus has promised to do within him. Jesus gives Peter these words of confidence that he isn't always going to be the same sort of person. There's going to be a work that's going on inside of him. Jesus is going to give Peter a gift. He's going to give him the Holy Spirit. Not only to Peter, but to his whole church, even to us. The same spirit would be, or the spirit that would be working in, work in Peter to transform and remake this coward is the same spirit, brothers and sisters, that's at work in you. If he can do that in Peter, he can do that in us. You're slowly being remade and transformed into the image of Christ. The gospel isn't about self-help. The gospel's not about bettering yourself. It's not about taking steps to become a better or a more confident person. It's about being changed. It's about being transformed from the very inside out, not just uh, having our own actions better conform. But it's real change comes from the soul, from the inside, from the heart. Being changed is very different than changing yourself, isn't it? And there is very real change for you to experience in Jesus then. He's the source of our life and our righteousness before God, but he's also the source of our growth, too. It's why he gives believers his spirit to effect real change in them, that you are no longer in bondage to your sinful nature, or you're not defined by your weaknesses. God's word tells you that you're a new creation. But right now, though, we look like construction zones. But God, though, looks at you like he does a build, like, like a builder does, looking at the architect's rendering. Even though there's, there's framing that's still exposed, even though there's pipes and there's wires that are hanging out, even though there's piles of dirt that might sit around the site, he looks at you beyond that, and he sees the vision of what you will be in perfection and completion. But it takes time to grow, though. And sometimes there are frustrations because you don't feel like you're growing in the ways that you ought, or to the, the degrees. Or sometimes it even feels like you're regressing, but you ever watched a work zone before? <laughs> it's hard to discern sometimes. But you are still a work zone. And if you look carefully, though, you might even find bits of progress in places in your life that you didn't even expect. And like so many of Jesus' words, this must have caught Peter off guard. 
But later throughout his life, there must have been in some strange way, this must have been comforting to him. A former coward, Peter's identity wasn't in denying Jesus. We too often remind our, our, ourselves of our own sin, uh, sinful past, of our, our failures, and we use that to define ourselves. But this wasn't ident- Peter's identity. He wasn't looking at himself in light of that, not in what he had done. It was in what Jesus called him and what he was being made into. So that your identity then, who you are in, in, in Christ Jesus, isn't defined by your particular sins. It's not by your own weaknesses. It's not how you've fallen in the past. But it's in what God, by Jesus' work, calls you. It's in what God, by his Spirit, is making you. Do you find yourself focusing on your failures and viewing yourself in light of that? And who you think that you are now because that's what you see? Don't do that. Look at what you will be, what God says you are, and what he's doing in you to actually see who you really are. And so Jesus calls Peter once again. He says, follow me. Despite how he's sinned egregiously against his Lord before, he says, follow me. Because Jesus provides reconciliation and Peter's deeply humbled. Discipleship entails failure. It's part of it. You and I, as we seek to follow Jesus and to be a disciple, will inevitably fail. In fact, younger folks here, just get used to it. Don't use that as an excuse, but it's just the reality. You're going to fail. You're going to be an imperfect disciple no matter how hard you try. The question isn't whether or not you will fail, but what you will do after you fail. Will you grow despondent? Will you become fearful? Or will you look again to the cross? Because being a disciple isn't about being a strong or a brave Christian. It's not about a life of triumph or bravery. It's recognizing that we are imperfect disciples, and we have lives that are riddled with failure, But discipleship, though, is a life of repentance. When Jesus tells us to follow him, we look to where he went first as we follow. He went to the cross for you and I. And so we we repent of our shortcomings. We revel in the identity that he in turn has given us then by his perfect life. We're a people who are defined by grace, both as we're reconciled to God but also as we advance to further live out our our lives by the Spirit and our new identity in Jesus. And then the fourth point of restoration from this this text here is that restoration comes through a meal. Uh, This life-changing moment that altered the trajectory of Peter's life from failure to grace happened over a simple breakfast that was cooked over fire. It was through a meal that Jesus restored Peter back to himself. It's through that meal that he was going to be used again. Because meals are places where we share fellowship with, with each other. We get to in, invite people to sit around our tables. We, we get to know them, to hear them, uh, to be known by them in turn. The table's a place of giving and of hospitality. It's no different with Jesus. Isn't it profound that he would use a meal to, be, uh, to, to invite Jesus back into this renewed fellowship with him? I don't think it's by accident. It shows us a real intent. And he continues to show that restorative intent with us at a meal. He sets out a supper for failures, for sinners, for the humbled and for the broken. He invites ordinary people like you and I, not the mighty, not the good, 
so that we will again know his restoration. As we come to his table here, he doesn't set out bread and fish for us. He sets out something better. He sets out bread and wine. He sets out the very emblems of his body and blood which were given for the lost. He invites us to come to his table where he will feed us then by what we need the most. His very self, which was crucified on the cross to reconcile us back into proper fellowship. We come and eat. We don't do anything except come and receive. And we receive him. Those previous points about about restoration that we had earlier from the sermon also happen at the table that we're going to come to pretty soon. It's his invitation to know reconciliation with him yet again. Each week, as you come back to his table, as you come back to the meal that he sets out, he reminds us that we are being restored, that we are in right relationship with him. He reminds us that we don't need to fear him. We don't need to feel awkward. We don't need to be ashamed. It's also where he renews us for service yet again, because we understand his mercy anew and our total reliance upon him to then act with a similar mercy towards others. He continues to be at work within us when we come around his table and we see the meal that he's prepared for us. We experience his mercy in real tangible ways so that we can be changed. The bread and the cup that that are set out are signs of his promise to see us through into the end. Signs for that we will enter into glory. He promises to always be our God. He promises to always be at work in us until that day. We see the bread. We're reminded of his faithfulness as we touch it. We smell, we taste the the cup, and we're reminded that his blood has sealed us as his people right now and has also sealed the promise for who we will be. Friends, Jesus has set this table out for you. In just a few minutes, he's going to invite us to to come and to, to eat from the meal that he's put before us so that we too, again, can be restored and reconciled, that we can be renewed and we can be empowered again according to his promise. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are a reconciling God, that you would take people like Peter, people like us, and bring us back into fellowship with you. That you would have the desire to do that willingly, lovingly, not grudgingly. God, what what sort of God are you that you would do something like that? That you would take your very offenders and make them your own? Uh, Those are questions that we we can't just simply dwell on too much without other than just falling to our knees and saying, thank you. And Father, if there are any of us here who don't know that or don't know that as we should, continue to open our eyes. Uh, Renew us in, in, in that truth that it would become sweet to us that we do not have to come before you with that sort of awkwardness or shame or a sense of holding to our own worth because we have nothing. We thank you for Jesus and the cross that we've celebrated this whole morning. And help us then to trust you more as we continue to cast our gaze upon you. Help us to believe what seems to be so hard for some of us to believe at times. Again, Lord, Cause our eyes to come away from ourselves and to look and point more firmly and be focused more clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.